0: I probably say this a lot more than I should, but um, this passage today is one of my favorite passages. The problem is, see, the book of Romans is probably my all-time favorite book of the Bible. It really is. I mean, there's just, I, I've loved it for, for so long, and I quote it more than any other book of the Bible just because I, I so enjoy this book, and it's such a pleasure to to be able to, to preach through the book, to take it just verse by verse. And yes, unfortunately, we are going verse by verse, which means we won't be finished anytime soon. Um, last week, I did one verse. I'm improving this week. I'm, I'm doubling my effort. We're doing two verses, yeah. In his book, Just Like Jesus, author Max Lucato summarizes God's plan for our lives, Max puts it this way, God loves you just the way that you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Max tells about a wealthy woman who lived 100 years ago. She was extremely tight with her money, so neighbors were surprised when she had her home wired for electricity, which was kind of an extravagant thing. Weeks later, a meter reader noted that there was actually very little usage So he asked, are you using your power? Certainly, she replied. Each evening, I turn on my lights long enough to light my candles, then I turn them off. (coughs) I wonder if that's not how we often approach our relationship with God. We install the power by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We tap into that power just enough to get us to the point where we can function without his power. We don't even realize all that we're missing out on. Our passage today is about promise, folks. It is about tapping into power that should be able to take us into the abundant life. The question is, are we tapping in to the power? The promise that is ours in Christ, promise that is available right now, power that comes from Promises that are already realized in us, but maybe not, well, we don't have electricity on. I wonder if we settle for spiritual candlelight when we could be and have a beacon on a hill. Such is the power of the promises of God. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Yes, and and by the way, Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter of the book of (laughs) Romans, which is why we're going so slowly through it. Verse 29, last week we did verse 28, which was a great promise, by the way. Again, that promise, okay? That God turns things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What a great promise. This week is no different. Only the promises are magnified and multiplied. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. I'm gonna read out of the NIV this morning. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All of that is promise. Isn't that cool? God predestined you. He predetermined in his mind to conform you to the likeness of his son. And those that he did that for, he called. Where? To himself. He called them. And those he called, he then justified. He made righteous. And those he made righteous through justification, he glorifies as well. Doesn't just call you to himself, he gives you himself. What incredible promises. There are so many different ways to look at this passage. It's just amazing for me. I twisted and I turned this thing over in my head so many times last night, I was pretty much dizzy with the possibilities here. At at one point, I came out to my wife. She was watching a a TV, watching some Bones episode, and I had her turn it off. I I just got to talk to you about this kind of thing. And she gave me some good advice. Keep it simple, okay? Don't get too buried in that theological stuff, okay? Just tell them what it says, okay? I'm going to try to do that this morning. I love this passage. If I didn't have a deadline to actually preach something this morning, I'd still be turning it over and over in my head. But I'm here, and I need to, you know, kind of get with the program and share what this passage really means to me. Before we do that, let's stop and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am excited about this. Yes, I know, I get excited a lot, Father God. (laughs) about sharing your word, but I'm excited about this because this is transformational. This changes how I think. And when it changes how I think, it changes who I am. And Father God, I want that to, do, that, that to happen for all of us this morning, to be so touched by the truth of these promises that it changes how we think and then it changes how we live because it changes who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first things first. Let's look at the promises in this passage. There is an amazing promise right away that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we would be included in the family of God as brothers and sisters is the second promise that we would be justified, forgiven, reconciled to the Father through the Son. That's a third promise. And the fourth promise is that we would be glorified. Those are amazing promises. But there's more to this passage than that. There's also a part of this passage that really talks about this amazing plan that God has to make sure that all this happens, a plan that God conceived before we were conceived. That's how important this was to God, that he thought it up before you ever came into existence. So let's look at the promises. I'll just go through the the promises one by one. First, the promise of conforming to the image of Jesus. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. All that means is that God wants you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Why? Is God looking for a planet of clones? Not really, no. God is actually looking for something that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Call it innocence lost, if you want to. You see, for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus does not mean we lose our individuality at all. God loves and created the variety that is mankind. But the one thing that God desires for us, and literally for all mankind, is that he would have intimate fellowship with his creation. Adam and Eve were created in the garden to have that kind of daily intimacy with God. Jesus walked this planet in that kind of continual intimacy Continual fellowship with God the Father. In John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. He did that over and over again in different ways to let us know that there was an intimacy, a unity that could be had. I only speak what the Father says. If you abide in me, I abide in him, then you will be like him. God did this. Jesus did this when he came to the planet to show us how this conformity thing was going to work. To be conformed to the likeness of his son means that God has a plan for us to be returned to the intimacy he shared with Adam and Eve in the garden. I say, Scott, well, I thought being conformed to the image of Jesus meant that I would think, act, and feel like Jesus, Okay, I like that idea, but let me ask you, how's that working out for you? I mean, seriously, how's that working out for you? Honestly, I look at my life sometimes, and I don't so much worry about how it's working out for me, but if it's working out for me. When I look at the church in general, the church universal, I'm pretty sure it's not working out all that well. Well, Scott and I'm more like Jesus, I think, than I was a year ago. Oh, so this conforming thing is a process, you say. Okay, let's run with that idea for a moment. Yes, I do believe in some ways that I'm more like Jesus today than I was when I accepted him as my Lord and Savior 40 years ago. Yeah, I did the math. Wow. At times, though, I'm pretty sure that that 16-year-old kid was doing better than I am. Now I just told you how old I am. <laughs> Still, you know, if it's a process, then I'm going to say here, I'm going go out on a limb and say here, yeah, okay, there has been at least progress in my process. I am more like Jesus today than I probably was 40 years ago. But if I look at the church in general, I'm going to say that I'm pretty hard pressed to see that kind of thing going on. The early church seemed to have a greater, deeper conviction and dedication than the church does today. Conviction that didn't border on fanaticism, it was fanaticism. Anytime you question that, read Fox's book of martyrs. It'll give you the real hard, cold truth of what the early church was like. You all know what a martyr is? Somebody who dies for their faith? Fox just put together a a book about different people in the history of the church that gave their life up for Christ. But okay, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about promises, right? Wasn't I talking about promises? This doesn't sound very positive, much less promising, does it? A promise should be positive. If being conformed to the image of Jesus was about thinking and acting and feeling like Jesus, then something's not quite right because we're not doing it all that well, at least maybe not on a regular, continual, ongoing, improving basis. You know, I would love a world where every believer thought, acted, and felt like Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? I do believe that if if we lived in a world where every believer was just like Jesus, everybody on the planet would be just like Jesus. How could you resist That would be amazing. But that is not the world that I live in. So something about my idea maybe doesn't quite seem to fit. To be conformed, folks, means to comply with a fixed standard, a regulation, a requirement. Jesus, for us, is that fixed standard. To comply doesn't necessarily imply a process, especially when the word conformed, which is in the past tense, is used rather than to conform, which would be a process. So let me put out maybe a different idea here for you this morning. What if being conformed to the image of Jesus isn't about really looking, thinking, acting, or feeling like Jesus, except as a byproduct of something far deeper, something more event-oriented than process-oriented? Let me explain. You know how some actors and actresses are very good about being able to transform themselves into the personality that they want to portray on screen or on stage? Yeah, I think of, he's now Sir Anthony Hopkins. Probably one of the greatest actors of our time. Did you ever see the movie Silence of the Lambs? Bone chilling. It was a thriller that just made you have nightmares, you know? The character, Hannibal, that he plays in there, just, ugh, okay? He does such an excellent job of throwing himself into every part that he plays. He's a consummate actor. How do actors become another person? They read about that person that they're supposed to portray. They saturate their minds with that person, their personality, their character so that they can learn through that intense study how to be that other person. I've actually read that some actors have trouble playing a part that's very intense like that and then going back to their normal life afterwards. It affects them so deeply. They often get so absorbed in the character that they're playing that they have difficulty going back to who they once were. Now, folks, if actors can transform, why can't we? Well, we could. If it was just about thinking, feeling, acting, we could. But that's not how God conforms us to the likeness and the image of his son. That's that's artificial. That's surface. It's imitation. It's outside. But God wants to conform us from the inside out. God doesn't start with our thinking. He doesn't start with our feeling. He doesn't start with our choices, our acting. He starts at a much deeper point in our being. He starts at the new creature. That is the point he engages us at. Being conformed is actually about something that God not only predestined, but also established in every believer at the point of salvation. What would that be? I submit that it would be the very thing that allowed Jesus intimate access to the very presence of God the Father. Righteousness. You see, the Old Testament is very clear. Mankind cannot have fellowship with God, cannot even look on the face of God, but what he would die, he would perish, because of his sinful nature, right? In order for us to have intimacy with God, the kind of intimacy that Jesus demonstrated for us in his life, that issue would have to be taken care of. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to have that issue removed and replaced with righteousness. Listen, when you were saved, what really happened? What really changed? It wasn't how you thought. It wasn't how you felt. It wasn't necessarily how you acted, at least not at first. What changed and has remained fully changed ever since has been your standing before God, righteous and holy because of the blood of Jesus. You stand as Jesus stands. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You have perfect and intimate access to the Father through the Son, bought, paid for, and established by the blood of Jesus. You were fully, at that point, conformed to the image of Jesus in God's sight. This, folks, is a done deal. It is not a process. But it is out of that done deal and that intimacy that it affords that our thinking and our acting and our feeling have the opportunity to change, to grow, to mature. I believe, by the way, there is a place for that changing, growing, maturing thing. Theologians call it sanctification. It is the process of walking out what has already been done in you. You were made righteous and holy. Walking that out in your life is sanctification, and that is process-oriented. But conforming to the image of Jesus is not. That is an event that God did when he made you a new creature in Christ. I believe that if we grasp fully this promise, this truth, that we possess intimate access to God, and we actually afford ourselves of the benefits that come from that, we would actually be the people who turned this town upside down for the sake of Jesus, actually right side up for the sake of Jesus. Listen, if you don't remember anything else about this sermon today, get this part, okay? I'm going to clue you in. These are your words to remember, okay? I know you only have 200 of them. (coughs) Get this. This Here is an incredible promise that has already been provided to you in Christ. Intimate access to the Father that can change the way you live because it changes who you are. God predestined, God predetermined before you were ever born that he would give you this kind of access to himself through Jesus. That is the true heart of predestination that God decided long ago that you should have this kind of access to him. It's the access that Adam and Eve had in the garden, and he wants to return us to that. So that's what he did. it. He did it for us. It's an incredible promise, and it's just the first promise of this passage. It gets even better as we go through. Second, there's there's a promise that goes uh, beyond that too. it's huge in so much as there's no limit to the reward of this particular promise. The second promise that I see in this passage is one of family. Again, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers Now, the subject of the promise is obviously Jesus here, right? It says that he might be firstborn of many brothers. But make no mistake, here the promise is also about us because we're the the brothers in the verse. As believers, we are born again into a whole new family where Jesus is the firstborn. Firstborn being a position or title rather than a genealogical event. In other words, he didn't get created okay, by God before the, everything else was created. He didn't get born uh, before everyone else. If that were true, obviously, all the Old Testament saints who were physically born into this world were born before Jesus. He wouldn't be the firstborn. Firstborn in this usage means preeminence. Like a firstborn child is closest to its father in line for inheritance and authority in the family. So Jesus enjoys the preeminent position Of being at the right hand of god the father after jesus in the line of succession comes the church comes us all believers folks all believers enjoy the same status in the family of god sometimes that's hard to grab hold of when we look at the life of somebody like billy graham who has had an incredible influence on the lives of people for the sake of the gospel of jesus christ And we want to compare Billy's life to our lives. Well, certainly he's going to have a preeminent place in in heaven compared to me. No, actually, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we all come sinners saved by grace. And we all come loved and adored by God just the same. And it doesn't really matter, by the way how long you've been a believer. Some people accept Christ on their deathbed, and we think, wow, what a wasted life. Well, okay, maybe. But eternity's not wasted. They are still loved. I, 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 again, I love Romans. It's just my favorite place to be. Uh, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us long before we loved him. Jesus died for us before we considered him. God is just like that. His love is like that. We all enjoy the same status in His family because we enjoy the same love as the next person. This is part of what Craig preached on in Romans chapter eight, sixteen, verse sixteen. We said the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Therein lies the promise of being brothers. We are co-heirs with Jesus. All that he has, all the riches of heaven are ours in Christ Jesus. That is the promise. That is an incredible promise reward. But there's more. There's another promise here. There's the promise of justification. Big word. What is that? To be justified means that you are made acceptable. I mean, that's just a dictionary definition of the word justification. In our case, that means that we are, like the first promise, made righteous and holy before God. It's almost a repeat of the same idea. It's just with kind of a different approach, a different application. In the first promise, it was God's predetermined plan that we would be like Jesus, a plan. Here, it's the application of the plan, the execution of his will. This is literally the promise applied. Justification is the promise of our salvation actually applied to us. Does that make sense? And it's what every person needs because according to Romans, again, (laughs) 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all needed this justification. We all needed this promise applied, literally applied to us as individuals. One more promise here that comes along with the justification. It is the promise of glorification. Glorified means to cause or to be treated as being more splendid, excellent, etc., than would be normally considered. <coughs> it's kind of an interesting word. It means to honor with praise, admiration, or to make glorious, to invest with glory, kind of like that last part of the definition. God invests us with glory. This is almost too good to be true. We're not only allowed access to the Father through Jesus, but because we're joint heirs with Jesus, we are made more splendid, more excellent than we would be otherwise. We are vested with honor and admiration because we are now part of the family of God. Yeah, that's, that's why Hebrews talks about, in Hebrews chapter 12, talks about the great cloud of witnesses. We all run this race, and, and there's this great cloud of witnesses that we run it before. And what are they doing? Go, man, go! They're giving honor. They're giving praise for every step we take towards the intimacy in Christ. God provided the pathway. The race course has been set. He made you holy, blameless, and righteous so that you could actually walk the path. You can actually get on the road. And then they applaud every step that you take. I love it. It's a great picture. It's like the the Olympics in spiritual terms. We are vested with honor and admiration because we're part of the family of God. All in all, this is one of the greatest verses of promise in the whole Bible, folks. All of those promises slammed into a verse. But there's even more to this passage than just the promises I've talked about. There's also this thing about God's plan for us that deserves some looking into. I enjoy searching out the meanings of a word, a verse, a passage. It's like a treasure hunt for me every time. And I love digging up the gold that I find in the Word of God. This treasure hunt centers around one word, though. The word is predestined. This is God's determination of what he's going to do. Predestined means to predetermine or decide ahead of time. Basically, as far as our verse is concerned, it means that God had a plan that he made up long before we were born. Actually, long before Adam and Eve were created. Revelation 13 says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. So really, God's plan existed before the planet. It was a plan that would happen. It's predetermined. A plan that included the death and resurrection of Jesus. This predetermined plan of God was really very simple. At least the goal was very simple to reestablish fellowship with his beloved creation after the fall, after we broke unity with him. God made up in his mind that this was what he was going to do. Creation would be redeemed to its former relationship with its creator, a relationship of intimacy. I love the idea that God predetermined my intimacy with him predetermined, meaning he built into this existence a plan to make that happen, to allow me to have that kind of access to him. I love that idea. You now, look at it this way. God provided the vehicle, Jesus, okay? He demonstrated how it should work, intimacy with him. Jesus walked it out in his life. And then he gave it away. He gave the keys away to anybody who asked. We all got the ride. That was his power that conquered death, the grave, sin. Like I said, it's not really all that complicated. God made it easy enough to understand that a child could get it. Sometimes when I'm thinking through a passage, I like to rewrite the passage as if I were the one providing the words. You do realize that God didn't reach down and pen the Bible, okay? The Bible says of itself that men wrote the words inspired, led by the Holy Spirit, that the Scripture is actually God breathed through the writing of a person. That's why we have four Gospels, and they're all different, okay? Because every man had a different group in mind that he was writing to, and God inspired him to do that writing. Is it still God's word? Absolutely. But it's spoken through a person, just like a prophet, okay? So when I approach Scripture, sometimes, especially when I'm approaching something that that there's just so much there that I can get dizzy, you know, flipping around and and, and trying to to look at all of the angles, so to speak, I, I, I need to stop and kind of write it in my own words. This is my attempt. To write this passage these two verses in my own words call it my paraphrase for all that god foreknew that being everyone okay by the way god's foreknowledge is linked to his omniscience which means god knows everything so god knows everything everything he has to know everybody right say yes scott okay i just want to make sure you're still alive For all that God foreknew, that being everyone, he also decided before they were even created that their best life would be if they were just like his son, Jesus. In that way, Jesus was and is the prototype for the family of God. And those that he planned for, he also summoned, called. And those that he summoned, he made holy justified. And those he made holy, he also honored. I like that because it kind of spells it out in real simple terms for me. You see, God's predestination is not about an outcome. It's about a plan that he had. He pre-planned what would be best for those he dearly loved. He determined before we were born what he wanted us to be like. It's like a man who dreams of one day having a son who would grow up to follow in his footsteps. Our perfect heavenly father has a plan for his children, a perfect plan. He predetermined that plan before we were born, before anyone literally was born. He still wants that same plan for our lives. It's called intimacy created and provided for by the blood of Jesus that made you righteous and holy. After he accomplished it, he called us, he summoned us because he wanted everyone to partake of his goodness. For all that came, he gifted holiness so that intimacy could happen. And for everyone, he made holy He gave himself, his presence, the highest honor to be a son, a daughter of the Most High God. He glorified everyone who came with that kind of honor. That is the promise of these two verses that God knew ahead of time exactly how he was going to call us back, knowing that we would fall, knowing what would happen in the garden, He predetermined to call us back to himself through his son, gifting us holiness, making us righteous by the blood of Jesus so that we could have the one thing that Jesus possessed in spades, intimacy with the Father. What an incredible promise. I don't want us to live in the candlelight of knowing about God. I want us to live in the full light of being intimately connected to the source of power for this life. Because I do believe that if we do that, if we go to the intimacy, that we will change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you You didn't leave us out there just kind of wondering how we were going to get by. You made every provision for us. In fact, you planned it in advance. Your plan hasn't changed. Not one little bit. Your plan hasn't changed. You desired that we would have the one thing we needed most, you. Intimacy, fellowship with you. Because in that, we are the most glorified. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.